Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When you think of a missionary, you probably have in mind a relatively mature believer of Christ who has possibly been trained in seminary and is going on some canoe into Papua New Guinea, going into the jungles and sharing the gospel. But I don't know if you ever thought of the fact that this woman in John 4, the Samaritan woman, you might say is the first missionary of the New Testament. And when you look at her, and perhaps if you do consider this woman as a missionary, it should completely blow your mind of this idea of what a missionary looks like. Because we don't think of someone like her as a missionary. But actually, it's important to see her as that person. And I do think that helps us then to understand what it means to be a person who believes in Christ and the natural outflow of that faith is to simply tell others about Jesus. And Acts 1.8 talks about the gospel going forth from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, essentially going from your home to your neighborhood, to your community, to the world. And that's not the mission of a Christian. That's simply being a Christian. So we looked at last week what happened to this woman and how the foundation of gospel mission flows from the gospel itself. Next is this idea of the field being white for harvest in this gospel mission. This week, and the next time I, I speak, we're going to look at this idea of the fruits of gospel mission. And there are so many, I mean, many. Today we'll look at three, next time another three to four. So first, we'll look at the new perspective that flows out of this gospel mission. If we again look at verse 39, John records, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. You know, the mission that she experiences flows out of and is empowered by this transformation. And that gives her a new perspective on how she sees the world. And this transformation is very sudden. I mean, really, it's from this one conversation, but suddenly her whole life changes in a moment, in a flash. Prior to this, she was running away. She was hiding in shame because she had sinned. Sins that you might say, especially in her day, even today, would be quite shameful. And so she didn't want anyone to know about her life, what she had done, who she was. It's why she was going to draw water at noon so that no one would be around to do something so mundane as getting water, which was necessity. But then she goes out and she experiences the saving grace of knowing Christ. And she suddenly finds that this very sin that she was hiding becomes instead a testimony, 
a testimony of what Jesus had done in her life. It begins with the realization of her own sin. And we don't like dwelling on our own sin. For those of you who've come from a Roman Catholic background, or perhaps have ever been to Mass, and you go and see the, the penance booths, the confessional booths on the sides, and if you were to go into that booth and you know that remission of sins comes from the priest as mediated, you tend to think that sin had to be dealt with, but it was always dealt with through a mediator, a human mediator, the priest. But here we see Jesus encountering this woman, and it's not any person who brings forth the forgiveness of sins, it's Christ himself. And when he does that, it literally transforms the way she views herself. There are many things that happens in this world and in her heart, there was a lot of brokenness due to her own sinfulness. But when we experience perhaps our own sin, perhaps the sin of others against us, which happens in this world, and sometimes those sins are terrible. Sometimes the circumstances are horrific. But this is exactly why we see that Jesus, he suffered and died on a cross. He did so not just to cover and remove our sins, but also to deal with the brokenness, the horror, the pain, the suffering, the sorrow of all sin, of those who trust in him. And I want to give you a little bit of a picture of what he went through, because it then allows us to go back and say, well, that's the horror of sin itself. The gospel writers describe when Jesus was being crucified, he had to be what? they describe as being prepared for crucifixion. And this preparation of crucifixion was the Roman lashes. It was flogging. Flogging is not a word that we hear of too often. I mean, we, we might think of spanking as flogging, but it is not. The Roman flogging was 40 lashes minus 139, but what they would do is they would take a whip on its tails, they would put metal shards and pieces of bone and they would, the person who was executing this punishment would whip so hard that literally, not only was the skin torn off the back of a person, but it said that muscle was torn through, literally getting to the bone of a person. Now, some of us have perhaps torn a muscle. I tore a calf muscle. All I was doing was running to first base and I tore a calf muscle. It was a lot of pain. Some of you have torn Achilles torn hamstrings. or per It's painful. But that happens because of sports or simply running or walking. But in this instance, we see that what happened to Jesus is that there was an intentionality of wanting to tear muscle. It's often thought that the Roman flogging was at least as painful as the crucifixion itself. So if bone and muscle and tendons are all exposed in the back. And suddenly this big crossbeam is placed on his shoulders and he's sort of um, forced to climb the hill of Golgotha, lined with people who are mocking and spitting and throwing things and cursing him and laughing at him. All of that plus the crucifixion to deal with sin, my sin your sin, not just to deal with what I've done against him, but also 
what I've done against others, what I have experienced myself when people sin against me, all of that pain, all of that sorrow is not just symbolized, but in every way realized at the cross of Christ. And our Savior, one thing he does not do is wallow in self-pity. There is no one who experienced the injustice that Jesus did. Our world cries out for justice of all sorts. But there is no person who has ever lived who has not thought a single evil thought, not had in their heart in some way a moment of anger that was unrighteous, lustful, and just simply giving into it. Only Jesus experienced that in this world. And he experienced all this injustice without in a moment's um, not even in a moment of self-pity or anger, unrighteous anger. You know, in the midst of his greatest pain and weakness and sorrows and grievings, while he's on that cross, he looks over to the left and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He looks at his mother and John, his beloved disciple, and says, mother, this is your son. Son, this is your mother. He's thinking about Mission in his greatest sorrows. We tend to think that mission is meant for when you're strong, when things are going well in your life, when you've had enough knowledge, when you've had enough training, when you've strategized and planned and everything goes well. That's when God is going to use you to change the world. Why would we think that way when that's exactly the opposite of what he did through his son? When Jesus was at his lowest, he still thought, about this person turning to hear the good news, to being with him forever and ever. He's thinking about his mother and his, and his beloved disciple. Christians throughout world history have experienced terrible persecution, and it is in those times that the church has grown and the gospel has advanced the most. There's a reason why Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 12, says this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you heard those words, you heard persecution and rejoicing in the same breath. That doesn't make sense if the mission of the gospel is always meant for good times. I'm not saying people who are sinned against or mistreated and sometimes even abused do not face some terrible circumstances. Sometimes during those times, we need care and compassion for us, for others. But those of us who see Christ as our ultimate source of healing and hope, that's when you are most effective in mission, not least. It's actually when you're struggling, when you're in pain, when you're in sorrow. Some of the greatest sermons ever preached are sermons by pastors who are preaching at their wives' funeral, like, um, like Richard Baxter, John Owen. They are literally preaching sermons at their loved ones' funerals and preaching about the glory of the gospel. It's in the depth of our sin, not when everything's cleaned up, that you start telling others about Christ. 
because it's in those moments when you turn to Christ, you realize that I have no hope other than Jesus. It is so tempting when we are tired, when we are sick, when we are experiencing chronic pain, when we are ill, to feel as though we are entitled for people to care for us. And again, I'm not arguing that there's no place for sadness in those times. But beware, those are the times where self-pity and the temptations to it just flood our souls. You start feeling sorry for yourself. Especially when it seems like others aren't doing what they should be doing, caring for you. But we are told that in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And so therefore, we don't simply wallow in self-pity. We move forward. We tell others. Like this woman, you know, look at her life. In this conversation, nothing had changed in her life. She was still the same person, but she was very different. In an incredibly short period of time, in a moment's flash, suddenly that which she was trying to hide became something she was telling everybody about. How does that happen? The only way is there has to be a new perspective on her life. It struck her like a lightning bolt. And when it did, that new gospel perspective, it fueled and powered her mission without her even thinking, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to tell others. I'm not, she wasn't trained to be an evangelist. She just simply experienced the grace of God and then said, I have to tell others. One person who understood this new perspective in the midst of intense suffering was Helen Rosevere. We have this book in the library. I really want to commend you to read it. It's her biography, Give Me This Mountain by Dr. Helen Rosevere. Helen Rosevere graduated from Cambridge University, incredibly smart and successful medical doctor. She took her training and decided to go serve in Zaire, which today is the same place that we talk about where George is at, would go to Goma, the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. She went to serve as a medical missionary. During the Civil War in 1964, she, among 10 other missionaries, they were imprisoned. On one particular night, on October 29th, 1964, she was brutally raped. In reflecting on that terrible night, this is what she wrote. She said, God understood not only my desperate misery, but also my awakened desires and mixed up horror of emotional trauma. I knew that Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus was true on all levels, not just on a hyper-spiritual shelf where I had tried to relegate it. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way in the fellowship of his sufferings. Only two years later, she returned back to get some treatment after that, went back two years later to the DRC to go and continue her work of telling others about the gospel while doing medical missions. In 1976, she spoke at the Urbana Student Conference, and this is what she said there. She said, one word became unbelievably clear, and the word was privilege. He didn't take away pain or cruelty or humiliation. No, it was all there, but now it was altogether different. It was with him, for him, in him. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way the edge of the fellowship of his suffering. 
Well, that's a new perspective. And that's exactly what this woman, not just Helen Roosevelt, but the Samaritan woman at the well faced. It's, it's just this idea that it's all about Jesus. It's about who he is and what he has done for me. And when you experience the grace of our Savior, you can speak the unspeakable. For the Samaritan woman at the well, the unspeakable was what she was hiding from, her adulteries, her divorces, something that she, in her day and age, would have led to severe persecution. For Helen Roosevelt, if you can imagine such a horrific event, and yet she's speaking in front of tens of thousands of college students to tell them about the glories of Christ. The only way that happens is that you care more about Jesus' glory than your own. And when we are so succumbed with our own self, our own pride, our own reputation, there is no way that we would ever tell anyone. But with that, is it any wonder that no one around us ever hears about the name of Jesus? What makes the name of Jesus significant is actually our weakness, our need for him, our desperate need for him. So that new perspective is one fruit of gospel mission. Second is that we see Jesus as a wonderful savior. Verse 39 again, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Again, that one verse, but you see before, the last thing she wanted to do was to talk about all that she ever did. And now she's telling the whole village about all that she ever did. Her testimony, when she runs to tell them about Jesus, must have been so compelling because she wanted them to hear about him. But this is a village that probably gossiped about her. I mean, if you were her, I think you, righteously so, you would be afraid that everyone would know about your life and would be talking about you behind your back. So it's understandable that she would be hiding, going at noon when no one was at the watering hole, at the well. And so if she were to come and say, run into the village where you are, and she were to say, I just met this man, you might say, of course you did. That's who you are. Wouldn't you be a little skeptical to hear about this woman saying, I just met this man. You need to come and meet him. There had to have been something about how she was saying this. Something that was so different. And it was different because the last thing she wanted was for anyone to know. Now she's letting everyone know. She was no more the run and hide person. Suddenly, she didn't care what people thought about her. She cared only about what Jesus thought about her, and that actually freed her from the opinion and approval of others. And living for the opinion and approval of others, it's a miserable life. It leads us to do terrible things. It can lead to suicide, depressions, sorrows, just simply because we care so much about what people are talking about us. What, are, what they're saying. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story of a man and his wife, how they were on a cruise. They're at the dinner table. And they were discussing getting ready for Sunday worship the next day, and they were sitting with this one woman. 
And this is what he says. He describes it this way. To their utter astonishment, a lady sitting at the table also expressed her great delight and said how much she looked forward to it, that is, the worship. Why were they shocked? It had never occurred to them that she was a fellow Christian. Her conversation, her appearance, her demeanor had given exactly the opposite impression. I don't know what she was like. Maybe she was downcast. And it's not that Christians don't get downcast. Maybe she was cursing up a storm. Maybe she was dressed seductively. Whatever it was, something about her made this pastor and his wife say, I don't think she's a Christian. And then they see her at church and they say, whoa. Have you ever encountered such a person? Have you ever met someone at the school PTA meeting, maybe on the golf course, maybe at the office, maybe at a wedding? You're talking to them and you hear them talk and the way they're talking, you just think, oh yeah, they're, they don't know the Lord. And then the next day they're at church sitting right next to you and you go, why are you here? But are they also asking you, why are you here? In other words, is there anything about you and your life that they see a, that you actually believe in a wonderful Savior? That they see that you actually think Jesus is wonderful? Or are we hiding? Are we no different than this woman going at noon to make sure no one knows we're hiding. One time I went to, with a, a fellow believer who was a, a professor at a university in Southern California, strong believer of Christ. He had a friend who was at Berkeley who was a professor, um, a, a chemistry professor. So he said, hey, let's go and visit my friend in his office. So I said, sure. So the two of us went and as we stepped into his office, the first thing he did, he started talking in low, hey, let's keep our voices down. And then he said, I gotta close the door. We were not talking about stealing secrets from the government, nuclear you know, codes or something. He said, okay, now we can talk about Jesus. Because he said, the last thing I want anyone to know is that I'm a Christian. And both of us left that place thinking, how sad to think that we're trying to hide that we actually see Jesus as wonderful. Praise be to God for this woman. You know, she is a simple person and a sinful person, but she can't help but tell the whole village that Jesus is Lord. Maybe it's how we respond to conflict. When we have conflict, do the people around us see, wow, you, you're a little different than everybody else. Maybe you're not gossiping, but maybe you are. Maybe we're joining in. We talk exactly like everyone else. Our behavior at work is exactly the same. Do we see Jesus as wonderful? It is one of the primary ways where we are exemplifying the gospel of Christ and where the mission of Christ moves forward is how we see Jesus. I'm not even telling you to go out and come up with the four spiritual laws and try to figure out what to say and what to do. The Lord will take care of that. What he's just asking is, have a relationship with me, love me, delight in me, and I promise you, 
I will fill you to overflowing? Does your family see that you see Jesus as wonderful? Or as soon as you get into the house, just cranky, angry, sullen. Do we bring Jesus to our family only when our kids are misbehaving? Hey, if you don't be quiet, Jesus is going to be angry with you. Do your neighbors see that you find Jesus as wonderful? Jesus addresses this idea in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's Jesus' promise. He's saying, if you find me wonderful, delightful, then people around you will see God. They will, and you trust him in that. It is your primary witness. And that's a promise. We are reflectors of the light of the gospel. Just like the, the moon reflects the sun, so too we reflect the light of Christ. And that's the powerful fruit of gospel mission. Next, a never-ending joy, verse 39 again. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because, because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Again, look at that word, testimony, and then he told me all that I ever did. The testimony was all about all the things she did wrong. And it's the enthusiasm, the excitement, and may I add the joy. And I think joy is very different than happiness. Happiness as a Christian, as a person, means circumstances are going well with you, so you are happy. The challenge with happiness is that happiness ebbs and flows. Happiness and sadness. It ebbs and flows with circumstances. On your honeymoon, as long as you don't have a conflict like I did, you are happy, but I wasn't happy. I was happy and sad, and my wife was happy and sad in our honeymoon. It went up and down, up and down. If you get first place in a competition, you're very happy. If you hit the game-winning home run, you are happy. But the thing about baseball, as we all know, there's slumps. So you can hit a home run, and then the next day, strike out four times. And it goes happy to sad really quick, really fast. If you go to the doctor's office, you find out you have a tumor you are incredibly sad. Then you get a phone call that says, the tumor is benign, you are very happy. So you can see, the circumstances of your life will always bring you to happiness to sadness, happiness to sadness. But joy, as a Christian, is not rooted on circumstances, it's rooted on a person, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because this woman saw Jesus she ran with joy. She left to tell others. Look at her circumstances, though. It didn't change. You know, it wasn't like suddenly she won a million dollars and everything became so awesome in her life. She, I mean, her husband or the guy who was living with her, she, who, she didn't know how he was doing at that moment. Nothing changed. Everything was the same. How is it that suddenly, in, if all the circumstances are the same, she's moving with joy, she's transformed and different? 
because she met the person of Jesus Christ. She understood who he was, what he was going to do for her. Her life doesn't change externally. She's dissatisfied with all the men in her life. She's still the object of scorn at that point. She still has to get water. But joy comes in and it changes everything around her. This joy is rooted in self-forgetfulness. If she cared about what she had done, what people think about her, how she sounded when she shared her testimony, would she have the right answers? Would she be able to answer all the questions that people had? Was she a good enough person to do this? She would never say to people, come and see what I see. Here's the problem with that type of concern. If you actually do see someone change in turn, you might think, well, it's because they're so skillful. You know, if you think of perhaps Billy Graham, Tim Keller, the danger of looking at skillful people is we say, oh, it's they, they're, they're so unique. They're so different. There's no way I could do what they do. But I go back to this woman and I say, I think I could do what she did, which is simply have a relationship with the Savior. It wasn't someone who was skillful. And she wasn't moral. If you think, well, I have to wait until I really live a good life. Then when everyone sees it, then I'm ready. You know, I used to think that way. I used to think, okay, I can only talk about parenting if all my kids are doing well, they go to the best schools, they're morally righteous, and then I can have a parenting seminar and everyone say, oh yeah, I, I wanna follow you. That's not John 4, that's the world. The world says the only reason I could do what I do is not because I went to seminary, not because I know so much more than you, I just believe in a savior and I want you to come and see him. That's why you should listen to me. It's not because I have more education than you. In Tim Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he makes this insightful observation. He says, the thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. We just think way too much of ourselves or way too little of ourselves. We just have to stop thinking of ourselves. period. <laughs> If we stop thinking of ourselves and think more of Christ, we will have joy. And even if we have a tumor, even if we don't get first place, even if we don't go to the school of our choice, even if we have a hard time and we'll never have a child, even if we never get married, even if we don't get the job we're looking for, we still have joy. We still have joy. That can never be taken from us. This is an incredible fruit of gospel mission. The world does not understand joy. It understands happiness and misery, but not joy. Joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's what a Christian is. We are always joyous, not always happy, sometimes really sad, sometimes grievous, but always joyous. You can experience 
happiness in one moment, misery in the next. If you've ever had someone, a loved one hospitalized, you can understand this. I mean, at one moment, doctor comes in and says, everything's great. You're, you're rejoicing, and then suddenly, there's a downturn. And then it seems like, oh no, everything's lost. And then it comes up again. And it go, I've, I've experienced that both in visiting people as well as in my own life. And those ups and downs within that small time frame makes you realize, wow, do not trust in everything going well to bring you peace because it doesn't work that way. The Apostle Paul described it this way in Philippians 4, 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. I know how to be brought low. He was brought very low. He was scourged. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned. He was beaten. I know how to abound in every in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and needs. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Verse 13 often is on sneakers of athletes, you know. Uh, but the point of it is not so you can score a touchdown or have the game-winning shot. But it's actually so that you can have contentment in the midst of deep sorrows and grievances, grievances and pains and sufferings and how do you have that through him i rejoiced in the lord the only way that we can have this type of contentment in the midst of the ups and downs and swings of life it has to be jesus if it's in the circumstance you're gonna be miserable for your life because it just keeps on going up and down it never ends and as long as you live and we know you know from when you're young, now to the oldest of ages, it just keeps going up and down, up and down. But what remains the same is him, in the Lord, in him. If we are connected to the work and person of Jesus Christ, we can weather any storm, any trial, any circumstance that is hard. What gives Paul joy? It's Jesus. He loves him. He knows him. What gave Helen Rosevere joy? If you remember what she told those 20,000 students, it's about him. Because certainly her circumstance was not joyous. It was not inherently joyous. It's only Jesus. That's it. What helps us to overcome self-pity and depression and suicidal thoughts? Misery. It's Jesus. It really is. You focus on what we have or don't have, and you just want to say, I give up. I'm not getting out of bed. I'm ending my life. I'm going to take these drugs and make sure that I don't think at all. I'm going to do whatever I can to just douse this darkness in my soul. But the only way we can endure through what the world says is trauma and mental health issues that since COVID has been, you're going through a lot. Everyone should cater to you. You need to just take care of yourself, make sure all is good with you, and it just doesn't work. The answer is Jesus. He really is our greatest hope. And when you have him, you have contentment. 
Because one thing we know for certain is life struggles, it will continue. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, forever. The secret to joy is that he strengthens you. He gives you peace. He gives you contentment. That never fades. If you have this, then of course, when you go and say, hey, come in, come and see to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your family member, to the person, even to the ends of the earth, if they see in you this heart that sees Jesus as the person who has transformed you, that you find him wonderful, that you're overjoyed even when the world says, why are you joyous when your, your life is so miserable? You have cancer. You're dying. If it's because of Jesus, then they say, I want to know about this, Jesus. And then you can say, come and see. Come and see him. It's the promise of the gospel. It is your greatest powerful means of bringing forth the hope and the mission of Christ to your neighbor, to your family, to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Father, I do believe that we have missed seeing what is perhaps our greatest, not perhaps, it is our greatest uh, means by which people will see you. It's to be a testimony of the gospel that you, Jesus, gave your life for me, one who deserved nothing but judgment, but you saved me and you saved us, not because of righteous things we've done, but because of your kindness, your mercy. We look at this woman, she's hiding, she's ashamed, she's fearful of everyone's opinions of her. But yet, Lord, you said in your word that you had to go to Samaria, not because that was the only route, but it was to see this woman, and through this woman, a whole village would turn to you. Someone who had no methodology, no strategy, no plan, just simply someone who was rescued and couldn't help but tell others about you. It starts with the rescue, O oh Lord. Help us to see that we need you. We need your son so desperately. We live in a broken world. It's getting worse, it seems at least. But one thing remains true. You are the Lord. There is truly none like you. You reign supreme. You are in control. You are sovereign. And your plan of salvation cannot be thwarted. From the very beginning in Genesis to the end of Revelation, from the beginning to the end of time, you are the same, Lord Jesus, yesterday, today, and forever. And as we take this body and blood, this bread and wine, we do so remembering that this is our power, our hope. This is the source of our joy. So we praise you. Thank you, Father, for drawing us together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.